I think we should all take into consideration where we want to be mm-hmm. next. Do we want a healthier community? Who do we want to be? You know? Who do we want to be? Do we want to be just some selfish, you know, over-consumed mm-hmm. society that doesn't care about the next generation? And I think we have an obligation mm-hmm. to the next generation that they should be better than us. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the Editorial Director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering the world of theatrical exhibition. Once again, joined by my co-host, Rebecca Pauly, Deputy Editor at Box Office Pro. And in our feature segment, you've got an interview with an independent exhibitor here in New York City, Rebecca, part of our sponsored Indie Focus series with Spotlight Cinema Networks. Yeah, indeed, Daniel. This is an interview with Nick Nicolau. You can find it in print in our uh, September edition. You know, you and I were both really big fans of exhibition history, specifically New York exhibition industry, and specifically the New York exhibition industry and the deep history of it. And Nick actually owns three theaters, one in Manhattan, one in Queens, and the one in Brooklyn where this episode's interview was actually recorded as the oldest operating movie theater in the five boroughs. So it's a beautiful oh, wow. location. It was it was really exciting to, to speak to someone who really loves exhibition with everything he has. So it was good to geek out with him on that. And that's the Alpine Cinema, right? Not too far from where you're located over in Brooklyn. Yep, it's Bay Ridge, Brooklyn. It's pretty much a straight shot on the B-32 bus. And as I mentioned earlier, that interview is part of our Indie Focus series. So we've got Nat here, Rebecca. Why don't you take it away? Absolutely. This episode of the Box Office Podcast is brought to you by Spotlight Cinema Networks, the only cinema advertising company dedicated to serving the needs of art house, luxury, and dine-in exhibitors for cinema advertising, pre-show entertainment, event cinema, and digital display distribution. Spotlight offers unique revenue-generating advertising programs tailored to an upscale and influential cinema audience. In collaboration with Box Office Pro, Spotlight Cinema Networks is proud to present Indie Focus, a monthly interview series profiling industry thought leaders, iconic art houses, and executives from the country's leading luxury and dine-in cinema circuits. To find out more about Spotlight Cinema Networks, visit SpotlightCinemaNetworks.com. Thank you, Rebecca, and thank you to our partners at Spotlight Cinema Networks for their support of the Box Office Podcast and Box Office Pro in general. But let's go into everything that we've got here before we tackle those Q2 earnings highlights, Rebecca. I know that you have a film series that you go to every single month here in New York City. That is, it's at the Nighthawk, right? It's the uh, surprise martial arts screening. Yeah, I try to make it every month. It's called Sundays on Fire. And every month it is a surprise. You have no clue what it's going to be, except it's going to be Hong Kong action of some sort. And yesterday it was a movie called Tiger Cage. It was quite fun. A lot of explosions. A lot of Donnie Yen, but like... Q's a baby. So yeah, that's, I mean, not a lot to see new with the box office now. And, and I could catch up on the things that I haven't seen yet, 
or I could see a random Hong Kong action movie on the big screen. And I'm happy with my choice. Speaking of new releases, Daniel, I've been hearing a lot about Prey, which is a Predator spinoff prequel that debuted on Hulu. You saw it and had some thoughts about that one, right? Yeah, this was the first time I think I see an original film in Hulu. No, never mind. I, I had seen a different movie on Hulu. What was that? Palm Springs. That was supposed to go on theatrical and that went straight to Hulu. Barb and Star our favorite oh, comedy of that, 2020. Yes, that went straight to Hulu as well. What a pity. I loved Barb and Star. I actually really liked Palm Springs as well. Hulu on a roll, I think, with the movies that they've made exclusive to their service. With Prey, the Predator prequel, in my opinion, probably as good as the original Predator. This is a movie that actually became Hulu's most watched premiere in the streaming platform's history. It's the sort of movie that I think really would have fit in really well on the schedule, if we look at this weekend at the box office, Rebecca, there was only one new opener in the top 10, and it fell in 10th place. That was uh, Lionsgate's Fall, which ended up with around $2.5 in its opening weekend. Everything else was a holdover. The number one title, Bullet Train, held over from the previous weekend, only made $13 million in its second frame. It really would have been a fantastic opportunity for this 20th Century Studios title to go out on theatrical, make a dent at the box office. These Predator sequels, prequels, they've never done fantastic numbers. But this is a specific release scenario where I really think this movie, Prey, would have done decent business at the box office had they given it a theatrical run. Unfortunately, it stuck to streaming. Great movie, though. I, I highly recommend it. I'll have to check that one out, though. Are you saying it's as good as The Predator now? I, at the original Predator, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm curious to see it now because that's a high bar to clear. It's a high bar to clear. Also, all the other Predator sequels have sucked. We, yeah. just, we have to call it like it is. And uh, no, this one was actually quite good. It reminded me a lot of like a throwback James Cameron movie. It has a lot of those same vibes, great action, decent special effects. They didn't go all in on the CGI with a predator. There were a lot of practical elements to it yes. as well. You know, highly recommended. But you know, we're looking here at some of these streaming premieres. We're looking here at the calendar with the box office going through these late summer doldrums. If I look at the Netflix top 10 from the first week in August, I'm also seeing two Netflix titles that are doing decently well in streaming that I wonder if they've had similar success with those circuits that are playing Netflix movies, either in like a one-week exclusivity run Cinemark is doing, or maybe other folks that, that play them day and date. You have titles like The Gray Man, the, the Russo Brothers movie that has done really well over its first three weeks streaming on the Netflix platform. And a breakout hit here, Purple Hearts, a drama from Netflix coming in under the radar topping their most streamed list of titles on the service. We know a lot more circuits play Netflix than maybe they admit to. It's not really something that's spoken about, although more and more majors and more and more independents are booking Netflix titles. But I think it all adds up to really wanting to see streamers like Netflix, like Hulu, find a better middle ground with theatrical to fill in these gaps in the schedule. I don't think anyone is, is imagining these Hulu and Netflix movies to be super blockbusters in theaters. But you got to think that they really would have made an impact at any point in the month of August. And they could have really done something in the market in September, which is also barren with releases. I mean, you mentioned middle ground, Daniel, that middle ground between a streaming release and a full theatrical release. And I think we see that 
with event cinema. You know, we're seeing the headlines of Clerks 3, which had its debut on Fathom Events. Obviously, Clerks 3, it's Kevin Smith. He has a large fan base. And they're adding more dates because it did you know, bring in the audience for that small amount of screenings that Fathom originally planned. So that's the potential here. It doesn't have to be some gigantic big release. It can be something that's a little more, let's say, organic and grassroots in terms of its promo. Absolutely. You know, Fathom is an example of an event cinema company that is coming in and working with exhibitors. There's other examples, Cinelife Entertainment from our partners at Spotlight. We've also got Trafalgar and Iconic Events releasing. Iconic, actually, which has worked with some Netflix titles, bringing them to theaters. So we've seen event cinema in examples like this one, working with streamers or coming in with original titles, really sneak into high grosses at the box office during this time. Hopefully the upcoming release schedule from the, our event cinema partners can help. You know, really this box office that isn't really on a winning streak as of late. It's going to be another rough weekend, Rebecca. We've got two new releases coming out next weekend, and it's a neck and neck race to see who ends up number one. We've got Beast, a title with Idris Elba. I think he's fighting lions in this movie. Just one that lion. That sounds like a cool high concept. But it's a really ticked off lion. It's a lion, but it's a, you know, it's a mean lion. Stringer Bell versus lions. Lion, sorry, singular. I'm in on it. I want to see what happens. And then you've got an anime release, Dragon Ball Superhero opening up this weekend in North America. We don't know who's going to end up number one there. I think it's really going to be neck and neck to see who emerges from that battle. But you did get to speak with a filmmaker of Beast for our magazine. Uh, that interview is now up online. Rebecca, what were some of your highlights from the conversation? Well, the director of Beast is an Icelandic director named Balthazar Kormakor. He's directed uh, Everest, who's directed several uh, kind of man versus nature movies over the last few years. Insert actor here versus a lion. He is an actor who I would trust to do that. But, uh, you know, it, it made me excited to, to kind of see the movie, hearing him talk about his approach to special effects, obviously. It's not a real lion. You can't really get away with doing that in the movies nowadays. It is a CGI lion. You know, sometimes you see these these big special effects and nothing looks like it really has weight. You know, you see things just kind of bouncing along and it doesn't look real. From the trailers, I mean, it does look like this is a Giuseppe and, and his two filmic teenage daughters and Charles Tocopley, who I always really do like because he really, he takes it to 11 and I appreciate that. If you're going to be in a man versus lion movie, that's what you got to do. This anime title that is opening up this Dragon Ball movie, they always overperform at the box office, especially in opening weekend. I haven't seen a single Dragon Ball product. Are you familiar with that at all, Rebecca? It is something that my younger brothers both really liked. It was kind of that 90s, early aughts, you know, rush home from school anime craze. That said, I know the, yeah. the mythology of the Dragon Ball universe is kind of, is very, it, it's an expansive world and I'm not sure how the different pieces fit together. Hey, it's, it's not something I'm personally interested in, but I always like seeing these niche products go out to, to find their audiences on the big screen. And in the exhibition, new side of things. We have some updates here from our coverage on boxofficepro.com. Cineworld and IMAX, Rebecca, actually expanding their partnership, going to open a lot more new locations by 2026 across the UK, the US and Europe, which is going to bring the total number of upgrades and new installs of IMAX in the Cineworld Global Circuit 
to 52 within four years. That's an interesting evolution here when we talk about the progress of premium format. As we know, Cineworld has also invested heavily with the 4DX and ScreenX technology. That looks to be paying off for some recent blockbusters. I was looking at a press release recently, ScreenX and 4DX combined to over $50 million in box office in those specific formats for Top Gun Maverick, an important sort of milestone here for PLF. And elsewhere in Europe, Rebecca, Kinepolis is actually adding new locations in Spain. Kinepolis, a Belgium-based multinational chain, operates as Landmark Cinemas of Canada in Canada and MJR Digital Cinemas here in the U.S. Uh, they've concluded a lease agreement with a real estate company to take over two cinemas in Spain, those being a 12-screen in the city of Amataro and another one in Marbella with eight screens. So we're continuing to see some of that consolidation uh, that we're seeing here in North America expand out to other markets as well obviously, in Europe, uh, these markets are still all recovering. And then on the other side of things, uh, another piece of news that we got over the last week, Daniel, kind of bouncing off of the success of ScreenX and 40X and uh, Cineworld going more towards IMAX and just really premier amenities. Uh, we have some news from Cinepolis of them providing a bigger experience to their moviegoers. Uh, that's right. Cinepolis actually committing to install Cineonic laser projection at all their locations globally. That's nearly 7,000 screens and 868 cinemas across 19 countries. That's a massive, massive deal. And when we talk about this deal, it's not about PLF per se, it's about your standard auditorium and raising that standard. We've been talking about that a lot as we've discussed the need to compete more with these in-home entertainment technologies. Cinepolis is making a big, big move here, committing to putting laser projection from Cineonic in all of its movie theaters around the world. I think that's really good news for moviegoers. And I'm excited to see how that uh, develops because that's gonna be completed by 2025. So we're gonna see a lot of these installs coming in through the next coming years at Cinepolis locations, both here in the US and all over the world. Yeah, we are seeing the baseline tech definitely get higher and higher in terms of the quality that a cinema is expected to have nowadays. But in terms of drawing in moviegoers, you know, there's the technology part and then there's also the programming piece and the theater itself and, and what goes on there. Daniel, you know, we get press releases kind of all day about the goings on in the exhibition world. My favorite from last week, I gotta say, is uh, Michigan-based chain Imagine Entertainment has partnered with a live events company to turn one of their movie theaters into like a haunted house, but it's a movie theater. It's called Ghosts <laughs> on the Balcony. It's actually apparently this awesome. theater is supposed to be haunted. I don't know. I, I always like that stuff. I know, uh, I think it was 2020, there was a cinema in Canada that auctioned off or it had a contest of you get to haunt the movie theater when you die. I like all that kind of stuff. <laughs> so but I mean, Imagine is the chain that has recently installed a sports betting kind of bar slash venue in, in one of their cinemas. So, you know, we've had those discussions about different things that cinemas can do that aren't just screening movies to draw in moviegoers. And, yeah. and this is one of the more innovative ones that I've seen. Yeah. And as you mentioned, Rebecca, that idea of a sports book in a movie theater that Imagine launched alongside the Caesar Sports Book, also in Michigan. That's something that I'm 
actually writing. I'm preparing that story for our next print magazine. And this haunted movie theater in Birmingham, Michigan, it's going to launch on October 1st. It's going to be there until the end of October. Just a, a very fun and quirky way to go to the theaters. That sounds like the type of movie theater that I'd love to go see Halloween ends once it comes out in mid-October. And talking about movie theaters that are always interesting and nice to go back to, we love independent exhibition, Rebecca. And one of the last remaining, if not last, I don't know if they're the last guy standing, at least in Manhattan, but definitely among the last in New York City, Nicholas Nicolau, that you interviewed the proprietor of Cinema Village in Manhattan, Alpine in Brooklyn. If there's one Queens Theater, that's in Forest Hills. What's the name of that cinema? That is the Cinemart Cinema up in Queens. I believe it's Floral Park. Yeah, I, Daniel, I don't know if you remember, pretty much right after cinemas in North America shut down in March 2020, Kino Lorber, uh, obviously one of the first distributors to really go into the um, virtual cinema model, uh, helping cinemas kind of stream movies and still be able to get some money, even if they're not physically open. They did a really neat thing with the, an older movie of theirs, not older, a few years older, called The Projectionist, where they let mm. uh, cinemas screen that movie in their virtual cinemas free of charge, just, just as a, you know, here, movie theaters, we appreciate you, we want you to be able to screen things. It, it was a really nice gesture, and I imagine some cinemas made at least some money out of it, which, you know, you needed every penny you could get in 2020. But actually, yeah. that film was a documentary about this gentleman who we're about to hear from, uh, Nicholas Nicolau, who moved from Greece to New York City uh, when he was 15, pretty much right away started working for movie theaters and has not quit yet. I was thrilled not just to be able to interview him, but to be able to interview him in Alpine Cinema, in the oldest still operating cinema in the five boroughs. You know, a similar story from what we saw of a lot of other cinemas during the pandemic. Uh, Nick really took the time to renovate the Alpine Cinema. It, there's this blend of it. I mean, obviously, it's a podcast and it's better if you see it, but the place looks gorgeous. I mean, the old school style of it. But then there's also, you know, you have a PLF screen. Technologically, it's in line with what we would see at any of the major chains, it looked to me. So, yeah, we're, we're just kind of kind of drop you right in the middle of the conversation uh, that, that, that the two of us had uh, geeking out about, about old movie theaters. And, and really, he really feels passionate about the importance of them, about how they can and do and will continue to uh, coexist with streaming, how it's, it's not a zero-sum game between the two. So yeah, I'm, I'm excited to show uh, clips from, from this interview. And you can read the longer version in our September issue and also on boxofficepro.com. Well, thank you, Rebecca. And let's take it right away here is Rebecca's conversation with Nicholas Nicolau coming up after the break. So you come to New York, you're 15, you don't know anybody. At that time, I mean, New York has such great cinemas, everything from neighborhood yeah. cinemas, movie palaces. I mean, there's, no. a, there's a huge range. What drew you to the neighborhood theaters? Well, first I started uh, when I was 15. We lived in Astoria, so the first bus the first train stop to Manhattan was 59th Street. And, mm -hmm. and in the 70s, that's where all the main theaters were. Mm -hmm. It was Baronet, Coronet, mm. Cinema 1 and 2, all the art theaters, 68th Street Playhouse, RQ, 59th Street, mm -hmm. uh, the D.W. Griffith Theater. It's all within one block, the 57th Street uh, Sutton Place. So I took the train and I went there looking for a job. And uh, 
a friend of mine used to work from in junior high school. So we kind of uh, played a little game, like he called up the last minute. He says, I can't come to work, you know, but, uh, you know, I can send my friend. <laughs> you know, he's, uh, he's 16, I wasn't even 15. <laughs> so they hired me. There you go. And I was, uh, you get the job, you know. I worked for RKO, which was a very good company. I played all the first one movies. It's like you're talking like AMC today. And I learned a lot of things from there. And uh, then I moved on because across the street there was other theaters, you know, and uh, there was an art theater mm-hmm. up on my right and an adult theater on my left. <laughs> so every day when I would rip the tickets, I'll see the adult, a little adult theater, upscale adult theater, mm-hmm. because... You bought by Bloomingdale's, you know. And you had customers there, like uh, Stallone came in there, and oh. all these famous people came in there. Oh, nice. You know, to show their friends, you know. Because those years, it was the in thing, you know. And the other theater was the art theater. I moved on from RKO and worked for these people. I mean, you, you could have... Uh you know, you said RKO is like a, you know the AMC back then. You could have just stayed there, and, and but you didn't. You, you didn't go to those major chains. I mean, when it's time for you to own a theater, you didn't. I very quickly was offered a assistant manager's job for the art theater. So and then a manager. So you, when you're in a small uh, chain, it was like 10, 15 theaters they have. You get promoted. Well, if you know what you're doing, we'll <laughs> we'll let you up the ranks a bit. Yeah, if you're willing to work hard, and, and I was going to uh, high school still. And How old were you when, they, when you became the manager at the, the art house? At the art house? Yeah. I was like 17. <laughs> but I always write a little bit about my... But you, you, knew the, you knew the theater better than... Yeah, of course. You know, older, then, you know, I'm sure. Uh, 18, and then when I was 19, my the district manager for those 10, 12 theaters, mm-hmm. decided to take off with one of the female mm-hmm. managers we had, mm-hmm. a younger girl. So he took the younger girl, <laughs> <laughs> and I took his car to cover him. And he didn't come back for months. <laughs> he must have uh, having a good time. All right. So I just... You just stayed there. You're like, all right, I'll, yeah. I'll keep doing it. So I kept doing it, and I became like the district manager. For these 12 theaters, it was like five, six neighborhood theaters. When you're like 18, 19. I was, by that time I was 19, yeah. Man, you're making making me feel like a slacker. I wouldn't do anything like that when I was 19. Those (laughs) years were different. Those years were different. I mean, in the 70s, people, New York was a different... Well, how's the theater scene changed? I mean, aside from the fact that they're just... So many that got torn down and replaced with chain well, stores. The, the theaters uh, today and all the chains, they have beautiful theaters. Mm-hmm. They really, the theaters are much, much nicer today mm-hmm. than they were then. What I feel bad about is that for whatever reason, we lost a lot of neighborhood theaters. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the, the neighborhood movie theater is the magnet of the main street of the area. Mm-hmm. And it serves more than just an economic anchor. It mm-hmm. serves as a social. It keeps, we're all better off for it. But that obviously doesn't get it when it comes to people that may be only thinking temporarily we need this money and that's it. You got to think long term. 
Well, because the, economically, too, the neighborhood theaters are vital to these other businesses that surround yeah. it. Nobody's asking to get money or we don't want to pay taxes. Mm-hmm. But tell me, this theater, when no one was willing to take it, no chain, and nobody, even all the indi- millionaire independents... You said it was, it was on the market for a it year It was on the market for it. a year after three theaters closed around here. And nobody came to get this theater. Massey and Knuckle had it on the on the on their market for ten million dollars to buy this property, and nobody would buy it. And this would have been my understanding was going to be a musk. Well, and this is this isn't just. And I said I don't care if it's a musk or another church. We got enough of those. Mm-hmm. A movie theater is a church in my eyes. I mean, people can pray at home, right? Yeah. I can. I pray at home Movies if I want to pray. Too, so, yeah. <laughs> but you he, still go to church, yeah. right? People <laughs> still go to church. Yeah, you can watch your uh, movie uh, iPhone. That's cool. Mm-hmm. And you want to watch it on your iPad or whatever, even though that's not the way a director's intent is mm-hmm. for you to watch his movie. Because to me, you like... Uh, minimizing the value of what his mm-hmm. work is. But at least you're watching it, so that's good. But don't eliminate your option mm-hmm. to do that and to watch the streaming and go to the movie theater. I'm a businessman, but I love movies, mm-hmm. but I, I love my community because I know what a difference it makes. You don't have a healthy community. We saw it. Recently, with COVID, mm-hmm. people are isolated. They lose their health, their mental health, I mean. Mm-hmm. And it's only going to get worse because isolation, uh, you live in your own fantasy, not the real world. It is not healthy. No. It's healthier to come out. Even, even you shake hands with somebody, mm-hmm. it makes you feel better. Or say hello. You don't have to sit down and have dinner. Mm-hmm. This is necessary. Just, just a friendly 30-second conversation with someone you're buying a ticket from. These people that make the movies and the people in our business, I strongly believe that we have really decent people mm-hmm. that care about humanity and care about the next generation mm-hmm. not to have a bunch of mentally disturbed people and they will do the right thing Mm -hmm. and they're not going to destroy the theaters they can coexist with their streaming platforms Mm -hmm. and watching the movies Mm -hmm. in other forms that's fine but it doesn't mean you have to destroy the movies there's room there's room for for everybody it may not be so much room, but I believe people in our industry are not the type that if we kill every other way you can watch a movie, then you have no choice but to subscribe. I don't believe in our industry. I've met a lot of people through these four, five decades, and they're decent human beings, and they'll manage to make good profits for their companies and include the movie theaters mm-hmm. only because it does make economic sense for them but it also co- we must all do our part to keep our communities 
healthier, mm -hmm. among other things a healthy community mm -hmm. does. Just like these community theaters can coexist with the Netflixes and the Hulus, and, you know, there, there's room for both. Here as well, I mean, you have the two, the dichotomy of the beautiful classic building, and, oh, my gosh, these, these fixtures that you found, it's incredible. You have to balance that with, uh, you know, having good presentation and making sure that everything's nice and up-to-date. I mean, when you're doing renovations on the Alpine, on this one during COVID, I mean, you had to balance, so we, we want to keep the old and the new. That's what we did. Mm -hmm. And at the time when we were doing it, there was no help. I mean, we were getting some PPP and things like that, but what do you pay when you don't have a payroll? Mm -hmm. That's why I, I said it was a extremely beneficial what Senator Schumer did mm -hmm. with uh, championing a bipartisan bill mm -hmm. with uh, fellow senators from both parties mm -hmm. that was signed into law and there was relief money gave mm -hmm. to us and I'm not going to say I think without that money I am more committed now and I feel you made it through something. We all made it through something uh, really major. Uh, yeah, because I feel that movie theaters are essential to our community. Uh, I've made the decision to keep these theaters going mm -hmm. regardless of what happens. And I will try to bring as many people to the theaters. Even you've seen uh, every week we get an increase of cost mm -hmm. for the concessions. Mm -hmm. Every week we get a letter. I haven't increased mm -hmm. anything in this theater because I am dealing with um, working class people here and I don't like to see a family that even comes to the theater to shy away from concessions because mm -hmm. we know what concessions cost. That's mm -hmm. why we keep even that at lowest possible prices. You made it through some really tough times. You come back. You're better than before. What are your plans for the future for your three cinemas? I mean, what do you what do you want to do with them? Well, I, I believe and I hope and I, I trust because I know people in that make the movies. Mm -hmm. There's enough good people that are not going to just push this streaming to people mm -hmm. down their throat. And they, got, they, they are better people than that because it's a bigger picture mm -hmm. to include the theaters because theaters, at the end of the day, could give them more money in combination of what they're doing. I think we should all take into consideration where we want to be mm -hmm. next. Do we want a healthier community? Who do we want to be, you know? Who do we want to be? Do we want to be just some selfish Corporate generic, you know, all money's the only uh, thing that matters. You know, over-consumed mm -hmm. society that doesn't care about the next generation. And I think we have an obligation mm -hmm. to the next generation that they should be better than us.
And that about does it for this week's edition of the Box Office Podcast. Thank you to Rebecca Pauly for that interview. And thank you to Spotlight Cinema Networks for supporting this week's episode. We're going to be back again here next week. New episodes coming out every Thursday on the Box Office Podcast. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Record Edit Podcast in collaboration with Box Office Pro and the Box Office Company. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share. And we'll talk to you again next week. Bye.